Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we talk everything from 5G teacher strikes to impeachment with Michael Tobe. Sam Oosteroff talks about the government's position on the teacher strikes. And electric cars. Are we buying more? Are we buying in? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Going to talk about everything from uh, this to impeachment in the United States. Michael is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Where's my roulette wheel? (laughs) We can change it. We can adapt this in any way. Oh, God, it's him again. It's Tobe. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we get now? Exactly. Oh, too funny. All right, before we get into all of the other stuff that we have to talk about, uh, sure. Britain, UK announcing that 5G uh, accepted there, or, or at least in a limited form. Your thoughts yeah. on that with the limited information we have? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did see that. That would actually, in my opinion, be the first small misstep that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has done, only simply because... If you just look at it from a North American perspective and what we're dealing with right now with the possible extradition of Meng Wanzhou, who is the CEO and chairwoman of the board of uh, Huawei Technologies, you know, usually someone who is uh, someone like Boris Johnson, who tends to be right leaning in his politics and is at least willing to sort of move along with Western democratic values and other ideas, I think he should have actually waited to see what happened with this before moving forward or arranging any sort of a deal. And I know it's in a more limited capacity. So he's probably sort of thinking along the lines that, well, there's a whole marketplace out there, a free marketplace, naturally. And if people wish to buy it, you know, we should open the doors to everyone. The risk is because Huawei has been red flagged in the past for possible security and safety violations and concerns that they might use their 5G network possibly for spying, even though that's obviously never been proven one way or the other, I just don't think it was the best thing to do. How do you think the U.S. is going to react to this? Probably not well. I mean, they're not going to blow up over it because they're not... Britain hasn't said, or let's, let's still call them the U.K., hasn't said that everything is, t- is dealing with Huawei and every little link is going to go directly with this company, which is state-run and has a very close association with the Chinese Communist government, but I would imagine that Donald Trump, the U.S. president, and his advisors are probably not pleased with this. All right. Uh, do you think this will pressure Canada to allow uh, Huawei in because the U.K. has? No. No, there's, there's no association. It's a, Look, each country operates differently. We know that, Scott. So if the U.K. decides that that's the best way to do it, especially as they're leaving Brexit and they want to maintain that tie, that's up to them. Canada, much like other countries around the world, has their own choices to make. So, no, I don't think one hand washes the other. All right, uh, before we get to impeachment, just got to ask you your thoughts on the ongoing teacher strike and how uh, the Conservative government in Ontario is handling this. Uh, It certainly seems that the two sides can't even agree on what the issues are, let alone a solution to all of this. One side saying, uh, you know, it's e-learning and class size. The other side saying that it's, uh, it's all about compensation. Where where do we go from this? It seems as if the, the teachers have have convinced the parents that uh, their contract negotiation is about the kids and not their labor agreement. Yeah, no, it's, it's a messy situation. I don't think anyone's handled it perfectly, but you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, and obviously I'm far more furious at the teachers' unions and the way they're operating and the way that they're basically... I think they're making up, quite frankly, a lot of contrived stories about sitting down at the bargaining table and doing this and doing that. You know, there was a discussion you probably maybe even discussed on your radio show a while ago where someone suggested, and I forget who, that there should be open cameras at these negotiations so that if Party A says X and Party B says mm. Y, it at least be recorded and we can see it. Now, you know, the union was, all, was open for it. The government wasn't crazy about it. The government wasn't probably crazy about more for privacy reasons than anything else, but nevertheless, it's just kind of hard to tell because we can only base it on what's being reported. So you take one side or the other. The big thing is this can't go on. Excuse me, can't go on forever 
So at some point, the government's going to have to step in and do something. You know, What can they do? Will they legislate them back if these strikes continue? Obviously, they're going to ramp up next week. Yeah, that's, well, that's the most likely option. I mean, there's two. You could legislate them back or you could make teaching an essential service. Governments tend to stick away from the latter, not because they don't privately like it. It's just that they know that it's not politically tenable and you have to be sort of careful when you do things like this because you can cause an enormous amount of negative publicity for yourself, strikes and various other things. So, you know, since the votes, you know, all votes matter, you have to be very, very careful. But ordering them back to work, well, look, I mean, Premier Doug Ford has been asked this, and he said that he doesn't want to get to that point, and he's avoiding it for now. But yeah, this goes on month after month. What choices he have, really? I mean, that's the only way to end it. And it means it doesn't mean that negotiations are all dead at that point. It just means that they, they must go back to work. Everyone must be at, go to the bargaining table, and something has to be hammered out at some point. And you can't say never say never. I mean, something has to be done. But, yeah, I, I think that may ultimately become an option unless things are resolved at some point, and let's hope they are. Has this become a war of public relations? I think every battle like this, to be perfectly honest, is a war of public relations or communications, if you'd like. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely think it is, um, which obviously doesn't add a lot to the flavor of the discussions, because you know how it's being created. You know, you're, you understand what side they're taking and you understand why they're presenting the information or their position in a particular fashion. But, yeah, but unfortunately, PR is, is a part of a lot of the daily life of not only governments, but also unions. All right, let's go uh, south of the border. Impeachment uh, trial continues. Um, Many thought that uh, John Bolton should have testified way back when. Uh, That never happened for uh, various reasons. Uh, Now he's got a new book coming out. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's, I guess, due out in March, but the transcripts are available now (laughs) to some. Uh, How does this affect what's going on in, in, uh, in the impeachment trial? We'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, look, uh, the New York Times leaked out a few passages or some sections of his book. The whole book hasn't come out, and we obviously don't know where the Times got it from. So we don't know who originally leaked it. It could have been anyone. It could have been anyone at his publishing house. It could have been anyone who happened to see a draft. It could have been through the government because he was doing checks on certain things. Who Who the heck knows where it came from, but maybe one day we'll find out. However, it's out now, so people can read it. I've read it. I'm sure you've looked at it, and I'm sure some of the listeners have, too. And How did yeah, you interpret I mean, this? What are your thoughts on what he had to say? Well, look, I mean, it's, it's sort of broken up, so I can't really judge it at this point because I really need to look at the whole book to sort of from page one to wherever it ends to get it. But right. the way it looks right now, it appears to be more about personal reflections of John Bolton being a part of meetings, a part of discussions, and this is what he saw, and making basically trying to create a tie-in between President, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, his discussions with Ukrainian President Zelensky, and how this all connects together, where he claims that, you know, that Trump sort of did this deliberately, withholding money, even though, obviously, as we've seen in the Senate impeachment hearings, and it's quite correct, his legal team has shown that this has happened in other instances, but for perfectly legitimate reasons with other countries. Uh, but here's where the problem really gets into play. I don't have the whole book, obviously, sitting in front of me, and no one else does. If all this is is personal reflections, if this is all it's going to be based on, and there's no hard facts or research or quotes or anything that people can attribute to, to either a person, to an institution, a department, etc., then it works into the whole classic political scenario, at least in this case, of he said, he said. So I, John Bolton, was at this meeting. I, John Bolton, discussed this with President Trump. I was here. I was there. And then you get the counter side, which will be Donald Trump and obviously many of his senior advisors saying, yeah, sure, he was at some of these meetings, but not this one in particular. Or Donald Trump saying, why would I ever take John Bolton's counsel on this particular issue? Or he didn't know anything about what we were discussing with Ukraine, or God knows whatever else they say. And then it comes down to, in a very partisan, well, politically partisan United States, people just come down and say they either trust John Bolton, who obviously has 
a very respectable record, to his credit, of having been in Republican political circles for many years. He's held important positions with U.S. presidents like George W. Bush and previously with, with Donald Trump. He's obviously very well known. He's an intellectual. He's written many books and materials. He certainly knows what he's talking about. Or if you don't buy it and just feel that he was frustrated, that he was pulled out of his position quickly and he's trying to get revenge, then you'll side with Donald Trump and his staffers. And yes, he can make the points that, well, all they do is lie and this and that, as some people argue. But on the other hand, if someone is motivated to say something vicious or nasty because he or she felt they were mistreated for some reason, then his book, without any notes or notations or quotations, etc., or primary or secondary sources, almost becomes semi-meaningless. And, he, and today, quite frankly, I don't think an enormous amount of people will read this book, Scott. I think they'll just sort of get the little clips that they get from CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and others, and that's how they'll get their information. Some people may read the whole book. I'll certainly be one of them, but I'll make, I'll read, make my own conclusions at that time when it's released, I believe, on March the 2nd. But will this, in the grand scheme of things, have an overwhelming effect on this year's presidential election? I strongly doubt it. Uh, if Bolton wanted to put all this in a book, why didn't he just testify at the Democratic impeachment trial? Well, you can make money in a book. <laughs> That's one thing, certainly. Well, um, wouldn't that have been the ultimate tease, though? I mean, why, 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 why put it out this way? Why not? Like, was it he didn't want to testify? Trump didn't want him to testify. Yeah. Why, why are we making a fuss about this now? Because this is what's happened lately. If you go back, I mean, so Trump didn't want him many... to testify. That's why he didn't. Is that accurate? Well, I don't know why he didn't. I know I, I'm not. I don't know his reasoning. I think the rationale is. A lot of former political staffers now like to put out books. I mean, we saw that years ago with David Frum in his book, The Right Man, when he talked about his year in, the George, in George W. Bush's White House. It's become very common now for outgoing speechwriters, senior staffers, and others to write books about their period of time in the White House, whether it was for one year or whether it was for an entire presidential No, but does that before. make it not credible? It doesn't make it credible or not credible. The problem is that people just are, yeah, people are not willing to look at as many intellectual materials as they used to, and they're not willing to consider both sides of the story. Right. I think that we are more ideologically rigid now yeah. than we've ever been before. Hmm. We've always been, of course. I mean, re- ideological rigidity existed decades ago. It's just that, unfortunately, I think it's just been getting much worse, not necessarily because of Donald Trump. I think you can look back to, again, George W. Bush, Barack Obama's period of time in office is also examples of it. But I don't think people are willing to look at things as much, or they use the common lines that Donald Trump and others have popularized. This is fake news, it's a witch hunt, it's all lies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> so how does so you're so when you're saying how does anybody gain infor, uh, get information or determine which is the truth and or sorry, which is fact and which is fiction? I think it becomes very difficult because people are not willing to examine properly what is fact Mm. and what could potentially be fiction. Um, yeah, it's like Rudy Giuliani questioning, well, what is the truth, really? It's, it's, is it our opinion of the truth, or is it fact? Well, uh, sure. Look, and he went, you remember, One America Network, which is sort of a small competitor to Fox News, he took them along on one of his trips to the Ukraine and went through various things. But OAN... You know, and I, I saw it. It was, you know, it wasn't badly done on the, the more limited budget they have. OAN is obviously partisan in their position, and they are obviously only going to distribute what they want to see or what they feel the public should see. So you never get a full picture of these things, and I think it's getting harder and harder, even for people who've been on the inside and the outside for decades, including me, to actually see. We know what we like. But we don't necessarily know what the public wants or demands because the public is now so basically so firm in their position on a Mm. lot of things. It's very hard to sort of turn the needle a little bit in another direction to sort of suggest, well, have you ever considered this or did you ever put this in mind? I don't think people are willing to do it any longer. And that's problematic for our society and for intellectual discourse in general. So will we see Bolton testify? Will, uh, no. will that ever happen? And I no. mean, if you do, doesn't that open up a massive can of worms on what other witnesses would be called? 
Yeah, no, and that's why I said no. He will absolutely not testify. It's not that he doesn't want to. He's already said that he would. It's that the Republicans really don't want to open this can of worms. And I know. So what, is Bolton all of a sudden? I mean, Fox News was saying this the other night. All of a sudden, Bolton's you know supporting the left. I mean, how can that be considering no. the reputation that he has? So he's not supporting the left. The left isn't supporting him. The left loves this sort of information. They love it when conservatives eat one another. Basically, they. And I, we've talked about this in the Canadian context, I think, some time ago, and I've talked about it with others. This is when the left loves conservatives, because we are very open and honest with our positions, our beliefs, or even our different arguments within our own political tribe, that when someone comes out and explodes on another, you know, many people in the liberal media just erupt with glee. They put this person or people on as often as they can and try to ensure that they see that there's another rift in the conservative family, so to speak. But no, I mean, God. So Bolton just sour grape? The political left, he has nothing to do with the political left, but the Senate will never invite him, not because of fear. It's nothing to do with fear. It's because they don't want to get into this discussion of these war of words so close to the presidential primary starting. So uh, is Biden, or sorry, is uh, Bolton just doing this to sell books? I mean, or is he trying to get his story out? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, selling books, I mean, you don't make a lot of money selling nonfiction. The, the real, in the publishing world, fiction is where you make your real money. Yeah. How, however, nevertheless, there have been some nonfiction titles which have done very well, some of which, for example, you and I have talked about on air as well. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's a bit of both. I think he wanted to get his story out in a, in a long form, which is the way he prefers to write. And so his that. story is is that he was there and that that, that uh, Trump said what he said to the Ukraine president. So right, but that's his own personal interpretation, exactly. So again, it's we don't believe any of them. Then, if you can't believe not, one, no, no. I, hey, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. What I'm saying is that some people will not believe it because yeah. they're just prone to not believe it. Right. I didn't say what Michael Toll believes. I haven't even read the book. Right, yeah. like, I'm no, I'm just saying, though, it. no, I'm just, you know, as a person who's just trying to get all of the information out, you know, that, that uh, we can, it, it just, it, you know, we're, we're treading through quicksand here trying to get at the truth. I concur, but haven't we been treading through quicksand since Donald Trump became president? Yes. This is what's going on for years. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, let me ask you this. Over and above whether he's the, Trump, uh, the president is guilty of this or that or the other, blah, 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 blah. You can split the hairs. You can you know, get Alan Dershowitz uh, talking again for, for hours and hours. Or Kenneth Starr, whomever, yeah. And legalese and such. Uh, at the end of the day, and I think I've asked you this before, at what point do Americans say... You know, right or wrong, I'm just tired of this crap and the divisiveness that this president promotes. He does not promote unity. At what point people just go, I'm tired of this crap. I'm tired of living a reality show. Well, I think it's very simple. The vote in November will determine it one way or the other. So if people vote for Trump for re-election, and again, I say this and I continually say it, even to countries that that laugh and say, how could he be re-elected? Uh, trust me, his path to victory exists, yeah, and his I've... path to victory is extremely possible, and I believe he does have a path to victory, and I don't think it's going to be too hard, actually, believe it or not. It'll be a close vote, it'll be tough, it'll be a bloodbath in certain places, but I think he can come out of it, no matter who the Democrats nominate as their candidate. Their best chance to beat him is with Biden, for all his flaws. Everybody else, I don't think he had even a semi-crack at it. However, but your question is, when will Americans tire of it? I don't know, because I would have thought they'd be tired of it now, but clearly they're not. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Michael Tobes with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, ETFO is ramping up their work action. Uh, let's bring in a clip. This is from the Bill Kelly Show earlier on today. Jeff Sorensen with the ETFO local here uh, talking about, and, and Bill was asking, I mean, it seems as if the two sides can't even agree on what the issues are that they're fighting about, meaning uh, the government is compensation. The union says it's about e-learning and class sizes. So if we can't even... Uh, you know, come to some sort of agreement on what the issues are, the outstanding issues are, how can we ever come to a solution? There is, and and it's one that's been going on now for half a school year, six months, 
we have proposals on the table about some of the items you just uh, mentioned, and uh, we have yet to hear any feedback, any counter proposals, any discussion except for the sound bites in the media. All right, let's bring in Sam Oosteroff, uh, PA and MPP for Niagara West, and is on the line now. Sam, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me, Scott. Uh, you heard what uh, what Jeff Sorison said from the ETFO local here, uh, that they've uh, put lots of proposals on the table, and you're not reacting to them. What do you say to that? Well, let's, let's be very clear. We've been bargaining now for over 200 days, well north of 200 days. Uh, we've gotten two different deals, one with QP, one with EWAO uh, last fall. We've shown that we can get a deal offering, uh, you know, increased uh, support for teachers and students in the classroom. Uh, but what we're not willing to negotiate on is uh, what it comes to seeing how uh, they continue to escalate this situation for parents and for students. We've offered in good faith a $750 million increase across the board. We've moved on class sizes. Uh, we've moved on e-learning. We've gone from, uh, you know, in, in secondary schools from, from a proposed 28 students in a classroom to 25. We've moved on e-learning from a proposed four students in a class uh, to, or, sorry, four online credits to two online credits. But we haven't seen a single change from the union leadership, any of their proposals. We haven't seen any moves on their part uh, from from their position. And that's unfortunate because, you know, at the beginning of this process, when when we started this, the union leadership was really clear. They said, we don't want to hurt students' education. They said, we're not going to do anything that endangers students' education. And now we're seeing that with these one-day strikes continuing to escalate and now moving in some cases to multiple strikes a week, uh, we're seeing that credit card, uh, sorry, uh, uh, students' Cards are not being marked properly. We're seeing that this is having an impact on, on students' ability to learn in the classroom. And it's very unfortunate because we are trying our very best to bargain in good faith. Uh, as we were saying earlier on, though, it seems as if uh, each side says they're arguing about two different issues. One says, no, we're talking about this. One says we're talking about that. So, again, how do we come to a solution if we can't even agree what the problem is here? Well, it's important to look at what the government has put on the table. You know, we've increased education uh, from 2018, tw- sorry, from 2019-2020 by $1.2 billion. That's the uh, first time in Ontario's history that the education budget has crossed the $30 billion mark. It's a substantial increase in the education budget. Uh, but what we're committed to doing is making sure that as much as possible, the increases in those budgets go into the areas that matter most. That's why we've increased mental health supports, doubling mental health funding in our school systems. We've increased supports for special education to uh, the highest levels in history. We've increased supports with things like math and skilled trades with the $200 million math strategy. But what we don't want to do uh, is see the unions continue to focus on increased compensation, higher wages, uh, and even more enhanced uh, benefits. We believe that our teachers are uh, some of the best teachers in the entire world. Uh, we value the work that they do. It's why Ontario has the second highest paid uh, teachers in, in the Federation. But what we believe is it's time to put more resources in the front of classroom to support students who need it, not simply increase uh, compensation. And and I know union leadership might disagree, uh, but we also feel it's, it's, it's not fair to parents and, and to students when we see this continued escalation with zero Uh, proposals that are meaningful from the teachers. Are you worried this is turning into a public relations war and their cuts and kids message is resonating with parents more than yours is? I think we have to look at the numbers. Uh, The numbers are are clear. We've increased education by $1.2 billion this year. It's the first time, like I said, that Ontario's education budget has crossed the uh, the $30 billion mark, and those funds are going into supports in the classroom. They're not going into uh, simply enhanced wages and and increased compensation. Uh, But I I will say uh, the union leadership claims to be supporting kids, but it's not supporting kids when we're seeing that, uh, that, you know, their escalations are threatening education when students can't get marks on the report cards, for example, and when we see uh, EQAO uh, being endangered in some school boards uh, because of these continued escalations. Uh, we don't feel that's, that's, that's right. It's also why actually our uh, Support for Parents program has received an uptake of over 230,000 uh, parents across the province. We've seen 230,000 families uh, because take uh, advantage of this program because of the fact that they need that support that uh, union leadership isn't giving them. 
Uh, last week, I was surprised when the union started men- uh, mentioning kindergarten again, and I'm pretty sure Minister Lecce said on this show that kindergarten wasn't even wasn't going to be touched all day. Kindergarten. Do you want to elaborate on that? Is kindergarten a part of these negotiations? Uh, we are completely committed to to keeping full day kindergarten uh, and, and maintaining the model that uh, Ontario has. We we know that it's one that works for parents and works for for students. And uh, you know, we've said we're committed to maintaining that. Uh, all day learning is key uh, to to uh, not just students but also to parents and, and understanding that support. Uh, and I, I want to be clear that we are doing everything we can to support parents uh, in this process. So uh, I'm not sure why the union leadership keeps bringing this up as an issue. It's something that I know uh, we've committed to maintaining. Uh, what happens after these rotating strikes start to increase next week? As you said, uh, right now we're on uh, rotating uh, uh, strikes depending on the area you're in. Today it's Cortha Pine Ridge, Hastings, Prince Edward, and Upper Grand School Boards, as well as Moosonee and Moose Factory, uh, Moose Factory Island School authorities uh, that are out today. Uh, next week we understand that will affect uh, Toronto and Hamilton. Uh, and then there will be an extra strike, all-day strike, uh, put in there as well. So we're getting the rotating strike and then a one-day strike. That will uh, continue as they ramp this up. Is that going to, uh, to to pressure the government into somehow getting a deal or moving this uh, along more quickly? Well, Scott, first of all, it's, it, we want a deal. It's, it's our top priority. It's something we've committed to working towards, and, and we continue to work towards. It's why we've made moves on things like class sizes and and e-learning, it's why we're offering a, a 1%, $750 million salary increase across across the board uh, every year uh, for the term of the contract. But we haven't seen any reciprocation. And uh, we've said, you know, let's get back to the bargaining table also with uh, private uh, mediations so that we can get the deals that we were able to get uh, last fall with EWAO uh, and with the QP uh, union as well. We want to see deals because we believe these strikes are hurting kids and are hurting uh, families. It's why we uh, have put forward the Support for Parents program, uh, like I said, that has had 230,000 people uh, take advantage of that program and and be part of that program because unions don't have parents back, and we do. Uh, But we want to make sure that that we're doing that support in, in every way possible. And we know that ultimately resolution needs to happen, and it's why we've called on the unions to uh, to come forward with uh, the private mediation uh, and and come to a place where we can get a deal. Uh, but ultimately, it takes two to tango. Is there any are there any negotiations going on now, Sam? At all? No. Like I said, we've had our uh, we've been very clear that that we stand ready to go to mediation. Uh, we've called on the unions to go uh, come meet with us with private mediation, and uh, they haven't been willing to take up that call. At what point does uh, the government legislate teachers back to work? Look, I, I don't want to uh, get into any, any sort of uh, speculation around that. Uh, we're committed to getting a deal uh, and keeping kids in class and, and focusing on uh, investing more resources into the front of the classroom, not into higher wages and compensation. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of public relations going on, a lot of, uh, uh, of, of advertising going on for issues here. Are you concerned that, uh, that the teachers' unions are winning over the parents on this issue the longer that it drags out? What feedback are you getting from parents that, uh, you know, that, that makes us want to drag this out as long as we are? Well, I've heard from a lot of parents who uh, feel that uh, you know, as, as important as the work that teachers are doing in our in our province, and we recognize that as well, uh, these continued escalations are not fair to students and they're not fair to families. Uh, and they're glad to see that their government has their back with moves like the Support for Parents program, uh, hundreds of thousands of families taking advantage of that with uh, moves on things like e-learning and class sizes. Uh, and what I hear a lot of pe- people across the province uh, reaching out to our offices and reaching out to me when I'm out in the community as well, including teachers and retired teachers saying, keep on going, keep uh, keep up uh, the, the good work. Uh, we want to see more supports in the front of class, supporting kids with things like mental health and, and special education. We don't want to see uh, drastic increases in wages and compensation. You say no more money to teachers. You've given them enough with this, uh, with your 1%. Any money that you uh, that you want to put towards education, you want to go into the frontline classroom, yet, you know, every ad, everything they say is like, you, you're cutting teachers, you're cutting this, the kids, there's going to be no school left by the time everything's done here. You're just cutting, 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 cutting. Uh, how do you address that message? I mean, are you getting your message out? 
You know, Scott, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. The, the numbers speak for themselves. If you look at the budget and the fall economic statement, like I said, despite the rhetoric from the teachers' unions, uh, despite uh, the misinformation from some union leadership, what we're committed to doing is supporting kids. And that's why, uh, if you look at the numbers, we've increased education by $1.2 billion this year. Uh, and, and, and it's really unfortunate that we're seeing these uh, campaigns of rhetoric from, uh, from from some of the union leadership, because the facts of the matter are that we've uh, made significant moves at the bargaining table. We've made significant increases in key areas like mental health, uh, math support, uh, special education funding. We're committed to, do, to maintaining those going forward. And I think the key issue here really does come down to compensation and wage growth. Uh, we believe that our, our teachers are fairly compensated. Uh, we believe these escalations and strikes are, are hurting families. Uh, and kids, and we want to make sure that uh, everyone is back in the classroom and teaching our kids about the jobs of today and tomorrow. Sam, can you elaborate more on what they're saying in regard to 10,000 teachers are going, you're going to cut 10,000 teachers' jobs. You're putting 10,000 teachers out of work. Can you clarify what that means? And can you perhaps chat on the fact that there's an, an abundance, I believe, of teachers that are out of school, up and coming, young adults that are trying to get in but there's simply no teaching jobs. Uh, the population, the student population, enrollment, is it growing? Is it stagnant? Is it declining? Talk a little bit about the need for teachers moving forward. Yeah, so look, we have a, a large education system here in the province, uh, and for years uh, our, our student population in the province was was declining, uh, and, and the reality is now we're on a, on a slight up, uh, uptick again. Uh, but we've also seen uh, huge increases in, in the numbers of uh, teachers across uh, the province. Uh, but what we're committed to doing is, is maintaining the positions that exist, and that's why we've put in place a $1.6 billion teacher uh, attrition protection program to make sure that uh, teachers are, are able to keep their jobs. And I think it's important to look back at what happened last spring. I think you can remember last spring of, of 2019, uh, there were people saying that you know, thousands of teachers were going to be laid off, pink slips were going out the door left, right, and center. That The reality is last fall, those teachers were called back to work. Uh, teachers were called back to work across the province. Uh, they returned uh, to the classroom. Uh, much of that hysteria came about because of the fact that there's changing enrollment in, in various boards. There's there's movement in those type of things. Uh, but what we're committed to doing is, like I said earlier, maintaining uh, a, an important uh, complement of teachers in our in our schools, but also putting more resources into the front of class and in other ways, uh, special education support workers, uh, making sure educational assistants are in place, supporting our teachers with extra resources in math strategies and skilled trades, investing in specialist high-skilled majors programs. Uh, these are the types of things that we need to do to make sure that our students are able to move forward successfully uh, in, a, in an ever-changing economy, one that means we need to give them more and more skills so that they can succeed in the 21st century. But what ultimately the issue comes down to is the fact that the unions continue to push for increased wages, higher compensation, and more benefits. When we're saying, look, we respect the work our teachers do, we support our teachers' work, uh, and we want to make sure that they're supported. Uh, but we believe being the second highest compensated in, in the Federation is a fair, uh, a fair wage, one that we're, we're, we're continuing to increase with a 1% increase across the board. Uh, but we want to put more support in a way that uh, support parents and ultimately students. Uh, last question, Sam. I'm of the age, I've had enough of all of this. I remember going through this as a high school student. I've got kids uh, in high school and in elementary school. We've been through it at least three times, some form of job action or whatever. Um, I, you know, all three political parties, doesn't matter which one, it's, it's the same thing every time. Uh, the last battle, however many years ago, was just as fierce as this one, and the one before that, just as fierce as this one. Is there anybody that's just getting tired of the same old, same old? I mean, it's just the same thing every couple of years, no matter what the government is. Absolutely. I, I think many parents and, and students and, and uh, Ontarians across the province, I know from many who I hear from, they are very tired of this continued escalation. They want to see resolutions. Uh, <laughs> like you said, Scott, you know, whether it's orange or, or red or blue, we've seen these types of escalations from the teacher union leadership in the past, and uh, we see it again today. It's unfortunate because ultimately these strikes are hurting kids, uh, are hurting families, uh, and we want to make sure uh, that there's a resolution, which is why we stand ready and committed to 
uh, working to get a deal, uh, one that supports kids, uh, that, that protects our education system, uh, but also recognizes that, uh, that we need to put more supports into the front of class, not into higher wages and competition. Sam Oosterhoff has been with us, PA and MPP for Niagara West. Sam, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, electric cars. Ottawa's electric car rebate uh, that was budgeted for three years has uh, burnt through nearly half of it in just eight months. Uh, uh, Mark Garneau launched the incentive payments uh, last May, and basically how this works, 5000 bucks off the price of buying a new electric and hybrid passenger vehicle. Uh, to you know, lower the price a bit for consumers. Uh, $300 million, first come, first serve basis over the next three years. On January 19th, Transport Canada said $134 million in rebates had already been issued to 33,000 Canadians. Uh, and at that rate of uptake, the funds will be entirely gone by the end of the year. To talk more about all of this, what it means with our interest in electric vehicles, let's bring in Kara uh, Claremont, CEO of Plug and Drive, and with us now. Kara, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What's Plug and Drive? Plug and Drive is a not-for-profit, and we focus on uh, helping the consumer understand the environmental and economic benefits of electric cars. And your thoughts on the fact that uh, this incentive launched by the federal government last May is now, um, well, it's getting it's getting a lot of positive response in the sense that uh, the initial funds may be eaten up a little sooner than thought. Sure. I mean, I guess that's a good sign that <laughs> that uh, it's working well. People are people are definitely interested. We're seeing increased uptake uh, across the country. Will this do anything to, we saw the same thing in Ontario when Ontario was offering um, the rebates. And of course, when the rebates stopped, the sales nosedived. Is there any way to do this without offering rebates? At what point do these two lines intersect and, and the price start, right. st- start stabilizing? Right. Well, I mean, if you look at uh, the prices, they are coming down. And you see this, especially if you look at battery prices. Battery prices are dropping year over year, and the range is improving, efficiency improving. And so, uh, I mean, I do think you're going to get to a time, probably in the ballpark of 2025, when we're going to hit price parity, which means, you know, an equivalent gas car costs pretty much the same as the equivalent electric car. And, And then, of course, incentives wouldn't be needed. And in fact, you know, at that point, EVs are much cheaper because, of course, the total cost of ownership of an EV is much, much less than a gas car, even today, because electricity is so much cheaper than gas. Uh, what about charging? How much is that still an issue with people making the, uh, uh, making the conversion from one to the other? Sure. Well, actually, what we're finding is, uh, at least what the data tells us, is about 80% of Canadians drive uh, 50 kilometers or less a day. And so this idea of range is more a perception than a real problem. So people imagine, you know, the one or two long trips a year that they take, but instead of focusing on, you know, 99% of the time, they're mm. just driving 30 kilometers back and forth to work. So, you know, people say the best cure for range anxiety is owning an electric vehicle because they realize, wow, I totally could do this. It's not mm. a problem. So if I or, or anybody else listening there, they decide, you know what, I'm going to make the plunge here. I'm going to buy an electric vehicle. Um, what's the process? What do I need to do? What, how do I make this happen? Okay, well, um, the first thing obviously most people do is a little bit of research online because there's actually quite a lot of different makes and models of EV available. There's actually more than 40 different makes and models of electric car available. And you want to look at, you know, what's your price point? What are the features you want? Are you someone who drives a really long distance every day or you're a short-haul commuter? Is it the first car or a second car? You know, all these factors. And one of the best things you can do, actually, is come to the EV Discovery Center at Plug and Drive uh, in Toronto where we have all the different makes and models here available to test drive. You don't have to go to 10 different dealerships. They're all right here, and we can help you figure out what's the right car to fit your life. How do I plug this thing in at home? What do I need? You know what? You don't need anything. If you have a a garage or even a parking pad that's right next to your house, you can plug these cars into a 110 outlet. It'll work perfectly fine. The car comes with a cord set that will allow you to do that. 
The downside of that is that it'll be slow. Now, many of us are home all night anyway, so what difference does it make? But for those people who want it to be a little bit faster, a lot of people will install at home what we call a level two charger or uh, basically the equivalent of a dryer or stove plug. It's a 220 plug instead of a 110. Right, so speeds it up the process it of the charge. speeds it yeah. up. It, it means that you're going to charge the car from dead empty, which, remember, most of us are not pulling up dead empty. But if you were, you know, four to six hours, you're fully charged instead of with that 110 cord where it could take, you know, much double that at least. Now, what about the cost to the homeowner as far as electricity usage? So what, what, uh, what our data shows is the average EV driver is going to cost them around 500 bucks a year for electricity. And that compares to the average of about 2500 bucks a year that the average driver spends on gas. And so you're going to be in the money by about 2000 bucks a year. Um, many have said, what happens if we all buy electric cars tomorrow? Well, fortunately, in We're- Ontario, we have a very large surplus of electricity, a big surplus of generating capacity on the grid at night. And, of course, when are people home and it's convenient? At night. So if people plug in on the off-peak hours, you know, when the time of use price goes down, that's when it's cheapest, and that's when we have a surplus, there's really no problem. Where there might be a problem is if everyone were to come home at 5 p.m. and plug in right at the dinnertime peak. Uh, We don't want people to do that. That's the peak time for the distributor. And so we want to encourage people, hey, take advantage of those time-of-use prices. Right. Set your timer to charge after the, the, uh, after the time-of-use price drops. And, and let's be serious. This will be a gradual transition anyway. It's not like that's going to happen. Right. So it it's kind of a silly question. Yeah. Yeah. The only time it is actually a real concern is sometimes EVs do cluster in neighborhoods, and then you know it might happen sooner than later, but we're not there yet. I wish we had that problem. Hmm. So what are the cons of owning an electric vehicle at this point? Is it still uh, just the fear over how long a charge lasts? What about in the winter? Do, does it decline, uh, charging capacity decline in the winter? What are, what are still some of the challenges here? Sure, sure. Well, sure, some of these concerns are real. I can tell you, as someone who's been driving 100% electric since 2011, uh, I absolutely love it. I would never switch back. I mean, it's so it's so much cheaper. The cars are quieter and faster. They have better pickup. They're better for the environment. It, they're better in every way. And the, the main uh, difficulty is is it's just quite different. And people are you know have valid concerns. So you ask about range. Most of us we don't drive that far. And if we do, don't forget about the plug-in hybrid. There's cars that have. Sure. A battery and gas on board for that type of, of driver. Uh, you asked about winter. Uh, yes. I mean, the reality is, yes, the battery is not as effective in the wintertime. You are going to see a drop in range. And that's, again, why you have to think about what is your daily uh, typical pattern. Right. And then you need to choose a vehicle that even on the worst day of the year is not going to cause you a problem. What about, you said maintenance, obviously uh, a lot cheaper than an internal combustion engine. What about the length of uh, life for the battery? Uh, you know, uh, what happens after five years, six years? Sure, now now sure. cars last quite a long time. Same sure. thing with an, with an EV? Yes. So what we're seeing right now in the data, the truthful answer is, you know, the oldest EV on the road right now is about nine years old. So we don't have a lot of history yet to give you the full, full answer on that question, how long will the battery last? Right now, what we're seeing is the batteries are lasting extremely well. Uh, They aren't coming out of the cars yet. They're still working well at year eight and nine. So, So we're seeing good results. And because electric cars have so many fewer moving parts than gas cars, internal combustion engines on average have, you know, 1,800 to 2,000 moving parts. Electric cars have 30 to 50 moving parts, and so there's just so much less to fix, so much less to go wrong. No transmission, no muffler, no no oil changes, no fluids, no, no nothing. So you're definitely going to save on maintenance, and what we're seeing so far is the EV should last longer than an ICE or internal combustion engine car because of the less wear and tear on fewer moving parts. Clara Clareman has been with us, CEO of Plug and Drive. Uh, Kara, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, Ottawa offering last month incentives, uh, $5,000 on an EV program, $300 million. Uh, as of Jan 9, they're already almost halfway through with 33,000 Canadians jumping on board. Are you surprised? No. No, um, I'm not at all surprised. When someone offers someone else free money, um, why would, you know, most people would say, sure, I'll accept free money uh, from the government. Um, and... Um, and and so no no I'm not surprised uh, I'm 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 skeptical in the following sense Scott I want to see the data and I haven't seen it yet Here's my assumption Poor people don't buy cars I've got da- good data on that by the way uh, Low income people don't buy cars for a very good reason they can't afford cars uh, That's why they're poor I mean that that's one of the byproducts of being poor. They can barely afford their food and their rent, and there's very good uh, data from on this from Statscan and uh, CMAC. So, last year, 1.7 million cars were sold. 17,000 were electric cars. So it's an infinitesimally tiny, tiny, tiny number. Uh, 17,000 of 1.7 million cars. And uh, what I'm want to see the data for is who's buying, who got those grants. I, my theory is, my hypothesis, if you want to be sort of, be more, if you want me to be more sort of pompous, my hypothesis is those are very high-income Canadians, the kind of Canadians who can afford to buy a second or third car. They have their primary car, their SUV, uh, or something similar to an SUV, and they want to you know, tell, send you know, tell their friends and neighbors and everybody that you know that they're responsible and they're very green because hey, I've got a green car. I bought a I bought an electric car. Um, given the the sales are so small, seventeen thousand. I mean, my joke is there are more environmentalists in Canada than there are uh, electric car sales. In other words, not all environmentalists are buying cars. And and so what I think this is is a where I'm going with this is I think this is a boondoggle for the upper. The uh, the people in the top income groups, uh, because they're the kind of people that buy this. I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority of Canadians. Does that matter? Buy. Does that matter, Ian? In the sense that you're still getting people to switch from well, do internal... we, is it the role of government to subsidize rich people? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's make yeah. it more broad. Transport you know, Canada say, says Transport Canada says overall electric vehicle sales jumped 32 percent after the rebates were launched compared to the same period a year before. In 2019, cars made up three percent of all vehicle sales, up from two percent in 2018. There, I don't dispute that. Uh, uh, that's not where I'm going. Uh, the say the, the percentage of electric cars are still very very small. Now we could attribute it to ignorance on the part of consumers. Uh, I don't. Uh, I read up everything I can get my hands on on electric cars. I've studied it to death for myself personally, and I've com- repeatedly rejected buying one because of the reliability factor. I Yes, I fully acknowledge it's got less moving parts, as the woman said, from plug-and-drive. Yes, of course it does. There's no oil changes. I buy all that. But there's the problem with reliability, and I think a lot of consumers have rest- or judged it's not yet ready. And that's why so few people are buying it. I'm one of them. And, and, you know, I'm worried about the battery life. We don't even know how long the thing is going to go for or the replacement cost. My understanding is that everything I've read, the, ba- the battery replacement is, is staggering. Yeah, it's the most expensive component, yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not uh, changing the oil. <laughs> it's not buying four new tires. Yeah. And, and so I'm, before anyone thinks I'm trying to shoot this down, I'm not, I, I think electric cars are going to prevail. I do. I just don't think they're quite yet there. And, and, and many have said, and I think it's a very accurate assessment, that electric cars will become viable when you can, it'll go the same distance as the average gasoline engine, and you can charge it up, gas it up, if I can use that slang phrase, as quickly with an electric charge as it takes to gas up your car with gas. Mm. It takes me about, what, two to five minutes? Some mm-hmm. people can argue maybe it takes seven minutes. Well, when I can charge my car in five, six, seven, eight, nine minutes, that you know, that's when it's going to become, uh, I think, extremely popular. I mean, what what I'm where I'm going with this is the government is trying to push the market, is trying to push demand. I get that, but if the if large large numbers of us don't think it's ready yet, and the only way we'll do it is to take a very significant freebie from government, and they're overwhelmingly high income people, I, I'm very very dubious about the policy. I would rather. If they really want to promote electric cars, which I completely understand is a public policy good, 
well, then why don't you uh, uh, subsidize, and this, this is a subsidy, let's call it what it is, why don't you put those subsidies into basic R&D uh, in the battery? We know that the batteries are not yet there. I'm talking for range and reliability. So let's do pour it into research. And full disclosure, I don't consult to anybody. I don't consult to Detroit companies or electric companies. I'm speaking as a consumer who owns a gasoline car, a Honda, a four-cylinder, not a great big honking one, a big you know eight- or six-cylinder. And I've studied these uh, electric cars over and over. And as I said, they're getting better and better year by year. Let's put that out there. But I don't think they're there yet in terms of range and reliability, uh, inadequate charging stations, and we haven't yet talked about, and no one has truly honestly costed the true cost of an electric car. I'm talking about the charging, not only the capital cost, the buying, the purchase price, but the charging cost. People treat it as if it's free, but electricity in Ontario... Plug and Drive said it's like 500 bucks a year. Well, I just looked something up just before I talked to you, and I haven't done enough research in this, so I'm saying this with caution, but I read, came across one number that said it's a dollar a liter in electricity, hmm. equivalent of a dollar of a liter. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just know that electricity is 12 cents. I just cut my bill. Hmm. 12 cents a kilowatt hour in Ontario. That's what we're paying on average, and that's going up significantly. It's forecast to go up 50% over the next five years by the Ontario Power Corporation. So my point is, electric cars are not free. Yes, they're vastly superior for the environment. Let's get that out there. So I'm not trying to shoot down electric cars. I'm saying I think they are the wave of the future. I have no doubt that probably in about 10 years from now, we'll be mostly or many of us will be driving electric cars. But I still think they've got some ways to go to command consumer acceptability. Look at it another way. You know, this is the glass half full, half empty, Scott. So seven, I think you said 17,000 people have taken up the, the freebie. <laughs> There's 1.7 million car buyers. So that means that 1.6 and three-quarters million Canadians said, ah, no thank you, don't want it. Hmm. i got to run there. That. Ian Lee's with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.